Isn't it a great way not only to uh, start a month off, uh, but to be able to uh, worship with people that are like-minded and just love the Lord with all their hearts, and to be refreshed after, you know, a long uh, day. I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad those of you that are online are here. Before we start tonight, we need to pray, uh, just like what we did last week. Uh, tonight, we're going to be praying for Louisiana, uh, New Orleans, the area that was hit hardest uh, by Ida. And uh, so just in your groups, just uh, individually with, you know, maybe someone that you came with or people that you're sitting around, just pray for uh, the people that are not only going through a hard time having to rebuild, but also the lack of power, uh, the destruction that took place, that um, the Lord's word would go forth clearly, and that there would be lots of uh, help for those that are in uh, this time of need. Uh, just pray for Louisiana. And so, Father, tonight we, we do, we lift up to you corporately. Uh, those are going through these, um, uh, not only this devastating destruction that has taken place along uh, the coast in Louisiana, uh, but that you would um, uh, show forth your love to these people. Uh, we thank you that even though it is a, you know, a half a, uh, of our nation away from us, uh, that, that we would also be able to uh, whether it's uh, pray for these people or to somehow uh, be able to contribute, Lord, I ask that you would bring in uh, the needed um, repairs and, and strength and encouragement during this time, uh, that those that are able to go into these places that, that you would rebuild and, and even better than before, uh, that your word would go forth, that people that are struggling right now, that they would not only uh, see your love during this time, that they would see uh, your uh, presence in their lives, 
during this horrific um, destructive power uh, that is going on, Lord. I ask that you would be the one uh, that reigns uh, supreme in this event. Lord, we thank you so much for the privilege that we have to pray at any time and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you uh, hear us, just as what we're going to be uh, learning tonight. And we thank you for the awesome power of prayer. Uh, truly, we serve an omnipotent God uh, who at any time uh, we can reach, whom in at any time uh, we can talk to, Lord, and we are truly privileged. Help us to take advantage of that. Uh, help, help us to never uh, turn to you as a last resort, but help us to always turn to you first in whatever decisions, big or small, in our lives, in whatever events, uh, big or small, in our lives. And so, Lord, help us tonight as we read a story that was written some 2,700 years ago, and that we would see it just as current as today, that, that you do still work mightily in and amongst your people, that you still protect mightily the God of heaven's host, the one who is in charge of all the hosts of heaven, the one who sits between the cherubim, the one who sits high and lifted up. We thank you that we can come before you at any time, knowing that you accept us and even welcome us. We love you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Did you guys read ahead last week? Did, did you guys read the, um, uh, the cliffhanger? Did, did you read verse 36? Did, did you see what happened in uh, the story? The, the end of chapter 37 in the book of Isaiah, it ends with this mighty climax. The nation of Israel, the city of Jerusalem, is surrounded by the hosts of the Assyrian army, the greatest power of its day. And in first, uh, verse 36 of chapter 37 of the book of Isaiah, it says this, Then the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. So Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, departed and went away and returned home and remained at Nineveh. Now it came to pass as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, and his sons, Adremelech and Shazerez, struck him down with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat. And then Hazardan, his son, reigned in his place. There's this map that we've been looking at uh, that we saw last week and, and the week before, and you can see literally the Assyrian Empire engulfing uh, this little city, this little oval of uh, the city of Jerusalem. It's right there on the screens right now. And you can just imagine this massive empire swallowing every step as it goes forth. They, they surround and they conquer Edom and Syria, 
Egypt itself, the once great power uh, that the nation of Israel escaped from uh, some 1,500 years uh, before, Damascus and Samaria, the capital of Israel in the north, and now the only nation that's left is Judah, capital Jerusalem, this little island in the midst of the Assyrian Empire, about ready to be swallowed and literally surrounded by the hundreds of thousands of military hosts that the Assyrian army had brought. First, of course, you remember, they started with a political warfare, a a warfare of words, and, and they would literally stand at the gates of the army or the nation that they were trying to conquer, and they would demean their gods. And remember, all of chapter 37 and chapter 36 were all about this guy by the name Rabsheki, who was the commander of the army of the Assyrian Empire, literally demeaning the God of the Israelites, demeaning their king and his trust in this God, his batak, as we learned last week, his boldness in his God. And now... We find out the results, that confidence in a God who is omnipotent, that confidence in a God who is almighty, that confidence in a God who will bring about results. What is that like to serve a God who actually works? Because you see, all the other empires around, all the other nations, what kind of gods did they serve? It was the little G-O-Ds, right? They were dead gods. They were idols. They were things made with human hands. They they were worshipped for their, whether it's their beauty or their value or their significance in the culture. These were gods who would reign over certain seasons or certain parts of the earth, the oceans or the land or the springtime or the winter. But what is the God that Hezekiah and the nation of Judah serve? He is the one who is the omnis, omnipresent, omniscient, and omnipotent. The the one who is over all, the commander of the very armies of heaven itself. And how many angels does God have to send? How many angels? One. That's it. All those reserves in heaven, those legions upon legions in heaven itself, are held back and only one angel comes down and destroys over 185,000 of the hosts of the Assyrian Empire. And you remember from last week, this story is repeated three times in the Old Testament in very great uh, detail, Uh, not only in 2 Kings, but also in 2 Chronicles, and now again in Isaiah chapter 36 to 39. This same story is repeated second most only to the, re, uh, the redemption of the people of Israel from the land of Egypt, where, where they would escape from the land of Egypt. And of course, that story is foretold many, many times throughout the Old Testament as well. The miracle of God working in a nation and saving them from the brink of disaster. And we say to ourselves, oh, that happened a long time ago. Is our God still omnipotent? 
Is our God still omnipresent? Is our God still omniscient? Do we still serve the Almighty God who is in charge of all the armies in heaven? And does he still send his angels to protect you? Yes, he does. And this is the privilege that we serve a living God. A God who is active, not just passive and creator of all the universe, the earth itself, and then just leaving it alone. No, God is still active in history. You see, in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 12, we see the prediction that Isaiah made for this very event to take place. In Isaiah chapter 10, verse 12, it says, Therefore it shall come to pass, when the Lord has performed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, that he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his haughty looks. What is God doing to the proud? What is God doing to those that are proud in leadership? He brings them down. The contrast between pride and humility in the book of Isaiah portrayed in stark contrast with Hezekiah being humble before God and bringing that demand from the Assyrian Empire and laying at the feet of the cross, laying at the feet of the altar, laying it at the feet of God himself and saying, God, you solve this problem. When was the last time you brought your problems before God? Because we're good at trying to figure them out ourselves until we can't, and then when do we turn to God? After everything has been, you know, tried, after all the threads have been figured out, all, all the problems in our lives, we try and search and search and search for the answers and when we run out of those answers, where do we finally turn to God? Normally, he's last. We can learn a thing or two from Hezekiah. He turns to God first. Not only that, but in verse 37, again, the prediction coming true, what's going to happen to the king of Assyria? This king who thinks he is untouchable, this king who thinks he himself is all-powerful or, or almighty himself, what happens to this king, this proud king? He's assassinated by his two sons. He's assassinated by his two sons while he is worshiping his God, by the way, who is just a statue. And as he's worshiping his God, what happens to the king of Assyria? He's assassinated in the house of Nisroch, as it says here, by his two sons, whose names are really, really long. And then, of course, they flee to Ararat, which, by the way, is the place where the ark was supposed to have, you know, landed after the great flood. And then, of course, his son reigns in his place. Isaiah chapter 38, our story continues. But before we do that, I want to turn to 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 14 to 18, because this is the segue now between these two chapters. In 2 Kings chapter 6, 
verses 14 through 18, it says this, Therefore he sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and they surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered, Do not fear. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And so when the Assyrians came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, strike this people, I pray, with blindness. And he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. Do you understand what happens when we close our own eyes when we're blind to the power of God? What happens when we're blind to the power of God? Because this now is the segue into chapters 38 and 39. Because Hezekiah himself is now going to become proud. He's going to be proud of those things that he has. Uh, The empire that he now has that was saved, by the way, from the Assyrian Empire. And going all the way back to 2 Kings, we see this guy by the name of Elisha. He was a prophet of God. He was the second in command after Elijah, the guy that went up into heaven with a fiery chariot. You remember him? One of only two guys in the whole Bible that didn't die. And Elisha, he's there, and he's surrounded literally by the Syrian army, not the Assyrian army, the Syrian army, the nation that was north of Israel at this time. And what does this Syrian army want to do with Elisha and his servant. They want to take him captive. And the blindness of his servant, what does Elisha pray for? Open his eyes. Do our eyes need to be opened? Oh, yeah. Because can we be blind to the situations in our life? Can we be blind to those things that we miss where the power of God is working mightily? You see, even in our own state of California, people are leaving by droves. Why is that? We don't like the governor. We don't like the society. We don't like the rules. We don't like the high gas prices. We don't like the high property taxes and all the other things that we complain about. But is God moving here? Oh, yes. Yes, he is. Is God moving maybe in your work or maybe in your church or maybe in your family? Ask God to open your eyes. Because just like with Hezekiah, just like with Elisha, is God still working today? Yes, he is. And we see in chapter 38 now this segue into the next chapter. In those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death. Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, went to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. This is the prophet of God. This is Isaiah, the one who wrote this amazing book, 66 chapters. 
The, the one who predicted the conquering of the Assyrian Empire by in the future, the Babylonian Empire. The one who predicted the Messiah. The one who saw God up high and lifted up the holy, 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 holy one who would become incarnate God on earth, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And what is now Isaiah having to deliver to the king that he loved? His death sentence. Is this a maybe? Is this a, you know, it, it's, you know, if you do this, you'll live. No, what does it say in these verses? You are going to die. You, you shall die to the point of death itself. Verse 2, then Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Remember now, O Lord, I pray. How I have walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Now, uh, I, I hope you've read the rest of the story. I hope you've read these two chapters because if you read this out of context, it looks like this guy who has served God for a long, long time, and, and he's literally weeping to God and saying, God, please save me. I have much more things to do for you. Unfortunately, that's not the heart that we see. Because in verse 4, it says, The word of the Lord came to Isaiah, saying, Go and tell Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Surely I will add to your days 15 years. I will deliver you in this city from the hand of the king of the Assyria, and I will defend this city. I will deliver you in this city from the hand of Assyria, and I will defend this city. Let me say it again. And I will deliver to you in this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city. And this is the sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do this thing when he has spoken. Behold, I will bring the shadow on the sundial, which has gone down from the sun on the sundial of Ahaz, 10 degrees backwards. And so the sun turned 10 degrees on the dial by which it had gone down. This is a miraculous event that is taking place. This had only happened one other time in all of history. Remember during the time of Joshua, what did Joshua do when he was chasing the enemies that he was fighting? Literally asking God to do what? Stop the sun in the sky. We need enough daylight so that we can conquer our enemies, so that we can be able to search them out and defeat them. Lord, please stop the sun itself. Not only is that happening here, but it's actually going backwards. Can you imagine just the physics in this, the astronomy events that have to take place for this to happen? Where, where literally the rotation of the earth, this isn't some optical illusion. Where, where literally the sun is going the opposite direction to the way it is on the earth. The rotational forces that would have to be held in balance for this just to take place. As Hezekiah is asking for his life to somehow be extended for a short amount of time. In 2 Kings chapter 20, we see the same event also repeated as well. A couple of things are added in 2 Kings because of the way it was written and when it was written. 
But in chapter 20, verse 4, it says, And it happened before Isaiah had gone out into the middle court that the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Return and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people. Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Surely I will heal you. And on the third day, you shall go up to the house of the Lord. And I will add to your days 15 years. I will deliver you and the city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Then Isaiah took a lump of figs, and so they took and they laid it on the boil, and he recovered. And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, what is the sign that the Lord will heal me and that I shall go up to the house of the Lord the third day? And then Isaiah said, this is the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do the thing which he has spoken. Shall the shadow or the shadow go forward 10 degrees or go backwards 10 degrees? Uh, you get to choose, Hezekiah. You get to choose whether the sun goes up the steps or down the steps. You get to choose whether the sun goes forward or the sun goes backwards. In verse 10, Hezekiah answered, it's an easy thing for the shadow to go down 10 degrees. No, let the shadow go backwards 10 degrees, literally reversing time for a certain amount of time. So Isaiah the prophet in verse 11 there cried out to the Lord and he brought the shadow 10 degrees backward by which he has gone down on the sundial of Ahaz. You have to imagine just the privilege of being in this situation where Hezekiah and Isaiah are having this conversation. And can you imagine Isaiah asking God to do this miraculous event where literally creation itself, the rules of creation itself are being reversed? the power of an almighty God working in Hezekiah's life. To extend his life by how many years? 15 years. Going back to Isaiah chapter 38, verse 9, our story continues. Hezekiah writes this amazing poem. He says, this is the writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, when he was sick and had recovered from his sickness. And I said, in the prime of my life, I shall go to the gates of Sheol. I am deprived of the remainder of my years. And I said, I shall not see Yah, the Lord of the land of the living. I shall observe man no more among the inhabitants of the world. My lifespan is gone, taken from me like a shepherd's tent. I've cut off my life uh, like a weaver. I've cuts or he cuts me from the loom from day until night you make an end of me i have considered until morning like a lion so he breaks all my bones from day until night you make an end of me like a crane or a swallow so i chattered i moaned or mourned like a dove my eyes fail from looking upward oh lord i am oppressed undertake for me. You see this uh, writing, this poem, this song that Hezekiah writes is unique to the book of Isaiah. It's not found in 2 Kings. It's not found in 2 Chronicles. And can you imagine Isaiah the prophet literally 
sticking in this part of King Hezekiah's diary into the text here. Because we get a glimpse into the thoughts and the intents of Hezekiah's words. Why is he asking for a longer life? Why is he asking for these extra years? What is the motive behind it? Why do you want to live longer? All of us do. All of us understand what it means when we're here on the earth that we have a couple more days of life or a couple more years of life. And as we get older and older, what happens to our years? What, what happens to the time of life? I just turned 50. What does that mean? I'm halfway there? No, probably not. I'm a lot closer than halfway there. My dad just passed away at the age of 80. So if I take his uh, years into account, what does that mean for me? I only got 30 left at best, right? Do, do you understand what it means the closer and closer and closer you get to death? You see, everybody wants to go to heaven, but no one wants to die. And that's meant in multiple senses, by the way. Because you understand that when we go to heaven, not only do you have to physically die, but every single day of your life as a Christian, you have to spiritually die. You have to give up this life for a life that is eternal. You have to give up your comforts, your wants, for those that are around you. You have to take up your cross daily, as Jesus says. You have to give up your desires for the desires of God. Hezekiah continues on in verse 15. What shall I say? He has both spoken to me and he himself has done it. I shall walk carefully all my years in the bitterness of my soul. That's what we always say, right? Now, I, I'll live my life better if you just give me a couple more years, God, right? It's the foxhole prayer. It's the prayer that we say when we're in trouble or sick or close to death, and we say, Lord, just take this away and I'll serve you better. <clears throat> I'm not the only one that's prayed that, right? You have too. That, 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 you know, excruciating pain comes into our life. We, we experience a time of whether it's hospitalization or, or sickness in our life. And we say, if you just take this pain away, you just take away these, this discomfort, I'm going to serve you better, Lord. This is what Hezekiah is saying. This is exactly what Hezekiah is praying. Verse 16, O Lord, by these things men live, and in all these things is the life of my spirit. So you will restore me and make me live. Indeed, it was for my own peace that I had great bitterness. But you have lovingly delivered my soul from the pit of corruption, for you have cast my sins behind your back, for Sheol cannot thank you. Death cannot praise you. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your truth. 
the living, the living man, he shall praise you as I do this day. The Father shall make known your truth to the children. Two things he promises in this verse. The first thing he promises, I'm going to worship you. I'm going to worship you as long as you allow me to live. And then what's the second thing he promises God? That his children would be taught to praise God as well. Remember this. It's very important later on. Verse 20, the Lord was ready to save me. Therefore, we will sing my songs with stringed instruments all the days of our life in the house of the Lord. Now, Isaiah had said, just like what we learned about in 2 Kings, let them take a lump of figs and apply it as a poultice on the boil, and he shall recover. And Hezekiah had said, what is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? And you may think of this, well, this is just a, you know, a, a hack medical treatment or something like that. But you understand that figs have been used in medication for a long time. And not, not only for this boil and wherever this boil was at on his body, uh, this boil, of course, was filled with pus, with some sort of a poison that the body was trying to get rid of. And what do they do with this fig poultice? They, they put it on the boil. You see, people have been using figs to treat conditions that have been affecting the bodily systems, even the endocrine and the respiratory and the digestive and the rep reproductive and even the immune system. And some researchers, of course, they believe that figs have, you know, fat-lowering, cell-protecting, anti-inflammatory, anti-cancer, even antioxidant properties within figs. And of course, these properties may be responsible for the therapeutic effects of pigs like skin health or diabetes or, or even hair health or fever or, or digestive health. Every time you take a fig newton, guess what you're getting? Yeah. Of course, there's a whole bunch of other additives, don't you know? Or, or just regular dried figs or, or fresh figs. The sweetness of those figs. We used to have a fig tree in my backyard a long time ago when I was this little boy. And I remember literally every single leaf would have a fig on it. And this is the, you know, the amazing way that God designed the fig. And, and I remember whenever you would pluck that fig off, this white substance would come out from the stem where it was broken. Uh, this milky liquid that literally provided nourishment to that single fig. Every single leaf having a fig next to it. Now, I don't like fresh figs, but I, I love dried figs. They're chewy and they're sweet and they have this, you know, uh, satisfaction as you chew on them. Can you imagine now this fresh fig poultice being put upon that boil and God using those natural properties to heal Hezekiah? But then not just using the natural realm, what does he use to show Hezekiah that he's going to heal him? He does something that's supernatural. What does he cause happen to the very universe itself to show one man that he's willing to heal him? Causing the shadow to go backwards. 
Does Hezekiah keep his promise though? Chapter 39, this little chapter, this little chapter in the midst of Isaiah itself. And at that time, Merodach, Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. Now, we, we understand history. You understand, you know, the, the, what's going to happen with the kingdom of Babylon in the future. But, but Hezekiah doesn't. Hezekiah doesn't know how powerful and deceitful and evil the Babylonian empire is going to become. All he sees them as is this nation that is also subjugated by the Assyrian empire. And the king of Babylon, he sends this get well card to Hezekiah. He says, I, I hope you get well. I, I hope everything is okay with you. I, I hope you get healed. And Hezekiah, he receives this letter. He invites the king of Babylon to come. And in verse 2, and Hezekiah was pleased with him and showed him or showed them the house of his treasures, the silver and the gold, the spices and the precious ointment, and all his armory, all that was found among his treasures. There was nothing in his house or in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. We understand, looking back, we have 2020 vision, especially at history. You see, at this time, the Assyrian Empire has just literally devastated the world. And there's a certain undercurrent of rebellion within the Assyrian Empire. The Babylonians are trying to gather the nations that have been subjugated by the Assyrian Empire in order to overthrow the Assyrian Empire. And so they come to this little city, Jerusalem itself, surrounded, the only one, by the way, of all the nations that was able to stand up to the Assyrian Empire. And what does he do? He sweet talks. He charms. He flatters. He compliments. He brown noses him. He says, oh, I wish I was like you. I, I wish I had all these nice things that you have. He invites him over to his house and shows him all the things that he has. You think there's a little bit of pride in Hezekiah's life at this time? We're the ones that survived the Assyrian Empire. Look at what we did, right? Verse 3, we get to see exactly what Hezekiah is thinking. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and said to him, what did these men say and from where did they come from? Don't you hate it when someone speaks truth into your life? We're feeling good about ourselves, right? And then someone points out that we actually did it in a selfish, prideful way. This is what Isaiah does to Hezekiah. 
And by the way, this is one of the most loving things that you can do, pointing this out in someone's life. A watchman, person that's warning another person, another Christian, another brother, another sister. What does he say? So Hezekiah said, they came to me from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, what have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, they have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. I showed them everything. I bragged about everything. I, I, I made them indie what I had. I, I showed them all these beautiful treasures. I showed them all the gold and the silver, the jewels, the beauty of Jerusalem itself. And Hezekiah, or Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. By the way, this is the same title that we see being used in chapter 37. This is the same title that we see being used in chapter 36, the one who is in charge of all of armies of heaven itself. Yahweh, who is in charge of the very cherubim, that one who would come and destroy that 185,000 of the Assyrian Empire. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget. They shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And so Hezekiah said to Isaiah, and this is where we get the attitude. The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. Can you imagine that? Why does he say that? The very last phrase gives us the truth of Hezekiah's heart. For he said, at least there will be peace and truth in my days. I'm not going to live long enough to see it. It's going to happen after I die. How selfish can you be? How prideful can you be? How arrogant can you be? How long did God allow Hezekiah to live? 15 years. Long enough for him to show all of his riches to Babylon. Uh, long enough for him to have another son. Uh, long enough for him to be able to betray his nation. Long enough for him to have that arrogant heart. Long enough for him to brag to the king of Babylon of the things that he has. Now, the story ends here. We're going to see a division in the book of Isaiah. But in 2 Chronicles, we actually see the story continue uh, with perfect clarity. 
because in 2 Chronicles chapter 33, we read this. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. This is the son of King Hezekiah. Now, that means that if Hezekiah lived 15 years longer, how many years after this sickness did he have Manasseh? Three years, 12 minus 15, right? Verse 2, but he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had broken down. He raised up the altars from the balls and made wooden images. He worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Also, he caused his sons, the grandsons of Hezekiah, to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom. He practiced soothsaying. He used witchcraft and sorcery, consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He even set a carved image, the idol which he had made in the house of the God for which he had said to David and to Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I've chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever and I will not again remove the foot of Israel from the land which I have appointed for your fathers, only if they are careful to do all that I have commanded them according to the whole law and the statutes and the ordinances by the hand of Moses. Manasseh literally puts idols in that beautiful temple that was built by Solomon himself. And verse 9, so Manasseh seduced Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. Three years after that amazing, miraculous healing takes place, the most evil king to have ever reigned in the history of the nation of Judah itself now is born. And for 55 years, he leads the people of Judah into the most abominable things. Can you imagine that? Now, of course, if you read the rest of the story, there is a good ending to this. Manasseh will repent. But what happens in the life of a man of God who, first of all, promised that he would worship God humbly serving him for the rest of his days. And then the second promise that he gave, I will teach my own children to worship God. And does that happen? No, it does not. What does it mean for us to live life just a couple of years longer? Or to be content with the time that God has given us here on this earth now. 
You see, if you're not taking the time now to serve God and he gives you another decade or another 20 years or another 15 years, what's the hope that you're going to use those years for God anyway? Now is the time to worship God. Now is the time to praise God. Now is the time to glorify God for who he is. Now is the time to tell others. Not, not in the future. Now. Because are we guaranteed tomorrow? None of us are. None of us are. But are we supposed to use today for the glory of God? Yes, we are. And this is the privilege that we have now. We get to take communion together. Now, I love this. The very first Wednesdays and Sundays of the month, we have the privilege of taking communion corporately. And I invite you, as I read the, the passage that we're going to be looking at in terms of communion itself, where it was ordained, uh, that, that you would come up and just grab a cup. Maybe, maybe grab a, another cup for the person sitting next to you. Just grab a cup and, and just hold it for yourself as we reread uh, these verses. And these, of course, are very familiar to you. You see, in Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 30, we read this amazing uh, group of verses. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread. He blessed and he broke it. And he gave it to the disciples. Can you imagine this? That what we call the Last Supper. That this congregating with, with Jesus and, and his closest friends on this earth. The, these men that had walked with Jesus for three years. And now sharing this Last Supper with them. And it's called the Last Supper on purpose because this is going to be the last time that Jesus takes physical food here on this earth. This sharing of a single loaf of bread, the sharing of a single cup as it was passed around the table. Not, not like these, you know, sanitary things that we have, you know, nowadays which are hard to open, you know, because you have to take off the top first, and then you have to take off the second layer. But, but can you imagine literally sharing that loaf of bread? Literally sharing that cup. What trust does that take? What, what familiarity does that take? Would you do that with someone that you don't know? Don't know where they've been. This was a communion, a dinner around a single table, sharing elements that were whole and then broken apart or separated. And it makes sense as we read this next phrase, take, eat. This is my body. Because what would they do with that hunk of bread? as they're passing it around. They would literally tear off pieces. 
representing the body of Jesus Christ. And so as you take this wafer, as you, as you take this representative of the body of Christ, and of course we don't believe that it becomes the body of Christ, we believe that it is just a representation of the body of Christ, but there's a sacrament that is involved in this. If you are a Christian, you have the privilege of taking this communion. Why? Because what does it represent? I have a close relationship with Jesus Christ. Isn't that an amazing thing? So as, as you take this, as you chew on this, remember what Jesus Christ did for you. And then, of course, the second element, the cup, verse 27 then he took the cup and he gave thanks and he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom, you see there's a special significance about the cup. And yes, this is just grape juice. It's not wine. It's not going to become the blood of Jesus Christ when you, when you ingest it. There's a sacrament, a representative of what this means that is so powerful. What does this represent? The shed blood of Jesus Christ. Whenever we drink it together, there's a proclamation that goes forth, as it says here. There, there's a proclamation that goes forth every single time we taste of this communion. That it represents not only the blood of Jesus Christ, but the new covenant that he's made with you and me in that blood. Not the blood of a lamb or, or an animal but the blood of Jesus Christ. And then the amazing phrase that comes after it, you will one day get to share this cup with me forever and ever and ever. That we will get to share this cup for real in heaven at the marriage feast of the Lamb with Jesus Christ, again, sitting at the head of the table and all of his sons and daughters gathered around. Can you imagine that communion service? So as you take this cup tonight, remember what Jesus Christ did for you. But of course, it doesn't end there. And as many of you know that come on or, or come regularly or come on, on communion Wednesdays or communion Sundays, we always read the next verse because even though it's the next paragraph, even though it's the next step of what happens, they do something again in unity. They, they break off that hunk of bread, they, they take that cup and they, they ingest it, they share a meal, but they also share something else at the very end. 
You see, in verse 30, it says this, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, you know, I, I really love being able to sing hymns with you, but I was just thinking about it this week, you know, what would it have been like to hear Peter singing, or John singing, or Matthew singing, or Thaddeus singing, one of those guys around that table. And can you imagine, you know, these loud fishermen singing out off tune, but just with joy, singing with their Lord and their Savior. 